Today, I'm super excited to bring somebody on the show who has maybe the most infectious laugh I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it is really a delight to hear him. It's a Chris Curran of Podcast Engineering School, but he's also into a lot of meditation and is a fully realized person. He's into all kinds of thought patterns. He's a pretty deep guy. How are you doing today, Chris? Yeah, I'm doing great, Eric. Thanks for having me. And I wouldn't, I definitely don't consider myself fully realized, by the way. <laughs> well, I guess that would go against the meditation, right? Well, yeah, well, no, it doesn't. It, it's just that we're all in the process of, you know, learning and evolving and perfecting ourselves and none of us is there yet. So, yeah. Or I guess what, when we die, we're there. <laughs> well, that's a possibility. Depends on what you do now to prepare for that moment. But yeah. Now, you have a remarkable career. You started out working in studios in New York. I know you, you've said that you went to a school in Ohio and picked up, I guess, a certification in audio engineering. Correct. Now, some of the artists you work with are fascinating. I know you've talked to, about the fact you've worked with a lot of rap stars. <laughs> yeah. But I also see like Jeff Buckley. Yeah, well, there's a lot of so I worked with a lot of different bands and artists and I and I worked close to them. Like Jeff Buckley is a good example of someone who I, I never actually worked on one of his sessions, but mm. I did. I mean, I wasn't in the room working on the session. I was helping um, the other engineers and, you know, doing some other things sort of behind the scenes. Um, but I did meet him and, you know. But yeah, I worked with all kinds of different artists. So was that for Grace? Yeah, that was when he was uh, they were, he was at Soundtrack doing overdubs for Grace, and they had tracked it in upstate New York, I believe, and then they were doing overdubs at overdubs and mixing at Soundtrack. So, and my roommate was he was actually the assistant for all of it, so he got to work with Jeff and the, and Andy Wallace, and that's on that album. It's Wow. I I was going to say, that has to be really kind of special. I mean, Grace and especially Hallelujah, is that's the greatest version of Hallelujah I think ever recorded. Most would agree. Yeah. I mean, I've so so I was helped, helping to make copies and, and dubs and stuff like that. So sometimes after the session, my roommate would he, he knew I was in another part of the studio and he'd call me up. He'd be like, meet me in the dub room. And and we'd go in there and he'd be like making copies of, of stuff that Jeff recorded that day. And him and I would just stand there in the dub room and listen and be like, oh, my God. So I've actually heard versions of um, versions of uh, what what is it again? You just hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. I've actually heard versions. I've heard many versions of that song. And actually one I thought was even better than the one that ended up on the record but you know there was a couple mistakes which is why they didn't use it but anyway tremendous what's well, a, a it's kind of funny that you've heard the different versions because i think leonard cohen when he wrote it it was like around 12 pages long or more of lyrics and it <laughs> took him i think 
like 20 years to perfect the song or to actually almost finish it. There's a fantastic podcast, um, Revisionist History by Malcolm Gladwell, where he covers that song over an entire episode and the history of it. If you ever want to check it out, especially since you worked a session. Yeah, I've heard that one. Yeah, it's a great episode. Okay. What other um, stories can you share that are from that time that really, you know, were impactful or, you know, something that... Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many, and I get asked this a lot, like, oh, tell us some cool stories. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, getting, like, interviewing a comedian and be like, so, tell us one of your favorite jokes. It's like, sure, it, it, it's sort of like putting on the spot is a little, is always a little weird, but, <laughs> um, I mean, I started at Quad Recording as an intern, and one of the, uh, and Mark Cohn was there. He was uh, doing overdubs and mixing his record, um, it was the one, what was the name of that record? Rainy Season. And I was just an intern, but I got to help the assistant engineer. But just working, just being near the production of that record was awesome. And I got to, uh, you know, it was my job. Well, the assistant allowed me to align the tape machine every morning. So that's how, I, you know, just again, you just get experience any way you can. So I was happy to, to do that. Um, yeah, and then, well, then I went to Soundtrack and... That's when I, um, oh, I went there as an intern, but then I quickly became an assistant engineer and worked on a bunch of different stuff. Some of my favorite sessions were with the engineer named Nick Didia, who he mixed a monster, uh, no, not the monster magnet. He mixed, um, Orange Nine Millimeter and, uh, this other band called God Street Wine. And I were working with him mixing a couple records was really, really cool because he's actually he actually recorded like Stone Temple Pilots and a bunch of other big name bands. So to work with him as an engineer was just great. And, you know, he, uh, you know, casually one day he's like, so, uh, yeah, I got tickets um, <laughs> to see Pink Floyd this weekend at Yankee Stadium. I can't go. You want them? And I was like, OK. And he gives me four tickets and it was fourth row seats at Yankee Stadium. Wow. So I called a few friends. I'm like, dude, we're going to see Pink Floyd. It was, and that, I mean, that's kind of rare, but that stuff did happen from time to time. Well, and you mentioned tape. Were you working kind of a crossover between analog and digital while you were there? No, most everything in, in those days. So I was there from about 93 to 96, and most of it was analog. Uh, but that, the, those are the years when the change was occurring. Like there was, like toward the like toward 90, 95, 96, uh, you know, you know, b- bands would be coming in with Pro Tools rigs and and all that stuff and using you know mixing out of Pro Tools. They would record. Well, sometimes they record on tape, but then digitize it into Pro Tools, and then when they mix, they would run it out of Pro Tools, but they would run it through the console, and then a guy like Andy Wallace would mix the record. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Um, but yeah, mostly analog back then. Absolutely. I mean, I got to cut tape and I got to, you know, make edits on two inch tape and all cool stuff. Absolutely. Well, did that, did that help at all? Um, understanding it because of the actual physical medium that you're cutting tape, you're doing this and that versus with it being digital and being more of a metaphor. Yeah, it did help a lot. I mean, just like, first of all, in terms of, just background knowledge just like knowing like how audio works from the more basic um from from a more basic level and then so then when when digital 
you know, came to rule the world, it, 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 it all made sense, right? Because I understood what came before that into digital. So, um, yeah, it definitely helps. I mean, and really, it's a confidence thing. Like, so much in life is about confidence. You know, you can have, you need the knowledge for sure, but you also sure. need the confidence. And so, like, you know, over time, you gain confidence in your field of expertise, and and so now, like, for instance, there's a lot of plugins that try to emulate analog tape and, and tube gear. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, if someone's 20 years old right now, they they never use the tube gear or they never use the analog tape. So they don't know what it's trying to emulate. <laughs> but someone like me who or, or and other lots of other people, we understand what it's trying to emulate and and what it was and how it was used and, and all that. So it definitely helps. Well, I think it's kind of cool, too, because you actually had to worry if you cut the tape wrong. You're, you're cutting a physical medium and it's screwed. Oh, punching <laughs> in was the best. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, we want to punch in these two words of the lead vocal. So someone oh, wow. would be singing the lead vocal and they're like, yeah, those two words, I want to overdub that. And you would literally have to play the tape and write on those two words right before it, like right before it. You'd have to punch, hit, you know, punch in, hit play and record. And then after they said the two words, you'd have to punch out and you'd have to punch in and out so precisely or else it would overwrite the words <laughs> before it and after it. Stuff like that was like no stress. Yeah, it, no. Str- <laughs> yeah, very stressful. But, you know, but that's the thing. It's like, I don't know. I always had a lot of guts when it came to that, like and guts and confidence and just like, yeah, I could do it. And so that helped. And. Well, it, it all went well. I mean, well, you don't have to do that yeah. very often, but it went well whenever I did it. Well, you got a reputation as the punching guy. <laughs> telling you, it was an art, man. Definitely. Oh, I believe it. And you had to have quick reflexes. Good oh, Lord. man. Wow. It's and got, the best um, is when they'd, they'd have you do a crazy punch like that, and then you'd be like, yeah, do it again. Uh, I didn't like the, I didn't like the, the performance. That, that's what I'd like, worry about. Wow. Wouldn't it wear the tape down over time, too? What's that? Wouldn't it wear it down or, you know, screw it up over time if you do it too much? Um, well, eventually, yes. But I mean, you know, like analog tape. Yeah, it gets older and it like you can only record on it so many times. But, you know, if you're recording on a small piece of tape, like, you know, four or five times, it's not it's not going to harm the tape, really. It'll 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 still be good, good quality. Okay, I didn't know if it would stretch or anything with it, you know, stop, start. You know, no. No, the tape okay. is rolling on the machine at a constant speed. It's just the head, the record head that activates ah. and then de- deactivates. So there's no physical stretching of tape or anything. Now, as you went on from that, you started to get into, I think you said it turned into all rap. And if uh, there's a movie called um, Corporate FM, and I'm curious if this kind of overlays right around that time that a particular sound came about and that's the same sound 20 years later now Hmm. um was that when you just kind of got tired of the particular music or style oh you mean working on the rap yeah rap or 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 i guess what is popular at the time i mean it seems like stone temple pilots and all that ended that was sort of like the last rock movement and there really hasn't been that much unless i'm missing something yeah, no, I I agree that it did mid '90s. It it did sort of change a little. I mean, the whole Seattle thing. I mean, it was still popular and everything, but it 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 just sort of lingered, and there was nothing like. Wasn't much. Well, 
it was changing, right? The whole thing was changing. But so when I was in the studios, I mean, yeah, I did work on a, a, a lot of rap, mostly rap, actually. So when when I got a when I got to work on a session that was not rap, you know, I was totally excited. Um, but I did, you know, leave the studios in '96, and then I was just working on bands in New Jersey and stuff like that. Sort of, you know, low key, small stuff mostly. Um, so by, so I was out of the studios by 96. So, okay. So, wow. It's been, uh, 23 years. Yeah. It's been a long time. <laughs> That's why. So after you left there, what, what did you do? Well, I was just working different jobs and, um, and, and also doing, you know, audio stuff on the side, because that's one thing about, you know, if you try to go freelance as an audio engineer or producer or something, it, you know, depending on how many connections you have in the industry, like you might not get a lot of work. And that's the thing I was trying to get work here and there. And I didn't have a ton of connections. And so I did what I could. I sort of did audio sort of on the side almost. Uh, and I was playing in bands as well. So, you know, my own bands, I was sort of playing and producing and recording at times. So I did that for a long time, pretty much up until 2011 when I discovered podcasting. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. I thought you had kind of, done a few things and then went into meditation and mindset things yeah so the meditation yeah i i I started so that was sort of in parallel you might say so Hmm. you know in 2003 my life was just a huge mess i had made a big mess of my life like oh like for real mess like no like living in my friend's basement like literally no job literally no car and what happened? Just things culminated? What? Yeah, no, just over time, you know, not doing the right things and bad ma- bad management of money, you might say. Yeah, I I mean, it's not nothing nothing spectacular. It's just like, you know, okay. you, if you don't work enough and you don't save enough and you're an idiot, then you went you end up in a bad place and you know, it wasn't like I was like you know, had a like a nasty drug habit or anything. I didn't. <laughs> no, 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 no. I understand. Yeah. But not enough work. And so you get behind on bills and then the bills start to pile up and then that kind of thing. I imagine. Yeah. It just, it's a, it's a, it, it's a snowball effect. And so I ended up at the bottom, which looking back on it was great because that's what I needed. That's when I sort of, you know, realized in my life, it's like, I, I, I literally had the realization that, you see, you thought you were the smartest guy and the coolest guy, but now look at you. You're a complete loser. And and I literally had to admit that and accept that. And I did. And I wow. said I got to I can't I'm this is not my life, you know. I was 31 years old at the time and I really had this thought that this is not my life. Like I'm I'm better than this. I'm going to do way. I need to do a lot of cool things and I can be way better than this. This is just rubbish what I've been doing. So I had to get my act together. So I did. And the meditation practice was actually part of that because part of facing life head on, you know, the more you zoom out, the more you realize that we're not on this planet for very long. I mean, Mm -hmm. the last 10 years or 20 years, hey, it went by pretty quick, right? So what do you yeah. think the next 10, 20 years? And guess what? Then we're, we're going to be dying. We're going to be old people. So in a way, 
we don't have that long to live. And I'm not trying to be negative and I'm not trying to be doomsday person or something, but it's true. It's true. We're not here for that long. And and so that's what I was feeling and and I wanted answers to bigger questions. Like what happens then? What happens when you die? Now I know every religion has their ideas and thing and it's fine. <laughs> Everybody can have their ideas, but I wanted to know for myself and that's actually the definition of a spiritual journey. It's you don't <laughs> just take a religion's word for it. You f- you figure it out yourself. And so that's the journey I went on. So I found a meditation practice. And yeah, since 2003, I've been actively pursuing that and meditating and studying spirituality. Yeah, you've mentioned doing a lot of varied reading. And what perked my ears is you brought up remote viewing. And a previous uh, guest I've had on, uh, Dave Freeze, was part of the remote viewing program with the CIA in the 80s. Right. So I didn't know how deep you got into that or your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I got into a lot of that stuff in the 90s, like way before I even started meditating, you know, properly for real. Um, And I I love all that stuff, like remote viewing, um, aliens. I love that conversation. And I'm not one of these people who declares positively yes or positively no that aliens exist. Right. I just love questioning it. And. Um, and looking into it and learning by looking into it. Right. So that's, that's how we learn. Like if you just accept the world as one thing and you never try to look into it deeper, then you don't learn Mm -hmm. anything. So it almost doesn't matter what you're looking deeper into, like just look deeper into anything and you'll learn so much and, and learn so much about yourself. So yeah, remote viewing was one of the things I really liked. Um, I've, I've done it myself, you know, uh, in an amateur way and I've read several books on it and I, I, I mean, look, I believe in human potential in terms of, you know, in terms of remote viewing and whatever else you want to think of, like all these almost like they seem like superpowers that humans can have, but I believe in all that and I believe we just haven't developed those powers. So that's why I was interested in it. That's one of those, uh, a lot of people I talk to are body language experts and things like that. And you mentioned about developing the powers. I kind of am of the mindset that we've forgotten them. Yeah. Well, they're in, they're inside. It's so when you say forgotten mm -hmm. them. Culturally, especially we used to read people. I mean, when we go up to somebody, we get an idea what they were about or, or if they were lying or if they were hurt or things like that, that we were much more tuned in to those around us. And I'm not even talking about that long ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. I think we are more tuned in than we are now. I think we've disposed of a lot of just our nature. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I agree. I agree. And I think it's been sort of covered over. I mean, there's um, the philosophy of the the spiritual practice that I do is that at our at the core of each individual human being is divinity right there's divinity in our hearts and you know whatever divinity is you can think about it what you want god or Mm. infinity whatever um but we, we are divine in our hearts and at our core but yet we it's almost like we wrap ourselves in this cocoon of like crap like social media and and ego and 
It, it's like we, we, we complicate our lives and we just distract ourselves so much so that we, what happens is we end up focusing on stupid stuff and then we forget the divinity in our heart. So I agree with what you said that maybe in the, in the past we were, we were able to feel that more. And these days we're feeling it less. And it's just because there's more external world crap that we're just getting confused by and we're getting all wrapped up in wrapped up. Right. That's a good right, mm, cocoon true. wrapped up. <laughs> well, it, it is. Um, I, I think we we're trying to comfort ourselves with distractions as well. And ironically, a lot of I don't know if you've ever seen some of the suicide studies and things, but you don't have as big of a suicide problem in a lot of countries that shall we say are more third world as you do in first world countries, first world countries. We have so much yet so many are so desperate. Totally. Yeah. It's because we value the wrong thing. I mean, if, if, if my, in, if my number of Instagram followers goes down, Oh my God, what a tragedy. Oh my God. Um, it reflects on my worth as a human being. And I mean, all that stuff is, it's re- it, literally, it's ridiculous. But for some reason, the popular culture, we just accept it. And well, that goes into a deeper conversation of how the popular culture or the sentiment of a country, if you want to think of it that way, mm-hmm. is um, is is uh, created by others and sort of sort of stoked by other people, maybe who have more power, right? And they, sure. they, they want the average person to get distracted and, and just have a crazy lives because they don't want them to become illuminated and enlightened and say, this is just a bunch of rubbish. Like, that's what's happening in politics now, I think. Oh, true. Well, and like the social media companies, most of the higher executives at social media companies don't let their children on social media. Exactly. Because <laughs> they yeah. know that it is weaponized. Yeah. Now, on that note, you've traveled to India... 10 or more times from what I understand and Denmark. Yeah. That's an interesting combination between the two. I mean, obviously if your um, spirituality and meditation, India seems obvious. Yeah. Denmark, uh, not as much. Yeah. So the, my teacher or guru, whatever you want to call him, he, uh, he was in India. So I would, I went to visit him and spend time with him many times. And, but they're also, you know, he, there was an organization built around him basically. And there were, there's ashrams sort of all over the world, not that many, but you know, from place to place. And there was an ashram in Denmark. So at times Mm. he visited Denmark, he visited the ashram in Denmark. And so from here in the United States, it was easier and obviously less distance to go to Denmark and spend a week or two with him there than go to India. Okay. Well, we're on traveling. Did you move from Jersey to Colorado to be more into nature and the wild? Um, I think so. Yes, but not quite. Um, not hundred percent consciously. So it was sort of just like a feeling. Like so, what happened was I I've grown up in New I've lived in New Jersey my whole life except the four years or four or five years I was in New York right working on working in the studios. Um. And then in 2014, my wife and I visited Alaska and because we love nature, we love obviously meditation and stuff and, mm-hmm. and all that and, you know, remote quietness, that all that stuff. And um, 
so we went to Alaska and we loved it. And Alaska is an amazing place. So we came back to our apartment in New Jersey and literally we opened the door, we walked in and I was just standing there. I'm looking around and I'm like, wait a minute. Why do we live in New Jersey? Like is why? Hello? Why? Anyone? Can I get an answer? No. So we thought, why are we living in New Jersey? Cause New Jersey is a rough place, man. I don't know. Even the, the Northeast is it's rough. Meaning it's very fast paced. Mm-hmm. People all everyone just looks down at the ground and everyone no one's nice to each other almost and it's just <laughs> a very weird way of life man it's like robots i mean when you start to develop your spirituality and and your eyes open and and the you know you can see things more clearly you you see that and you're like man these people are nuts <laughs> did you feel claustrophobic almost no, Suddenly. I mean, not claustrophobic, but just like, so anyway, the, the realization was, why do we live here? Why don't we, I mean, we have some family there, but even still. Mm-hmm. So then we figured out a way to move to Colorado Springs. Um, and that's where we live now. And how'd you pick that? Uh, well, I, so it was, uh, because of my wife's work, basically. Hmm. Yeah, she was able to transfer here. She, she could only transfer to a few different cities and this was one of them. So. It's a pretty good location, I think most would say. Yeah, I mean, we loved it. I mean, the fir- within the first week here, we're walking into a um, a supermarket, and the, there's a guy walking out, and he just he just looked at us and said hi, and and we just, <laughs> uh, uh, well, me personally, I gave him like the the New Jersey stare. I was like, what, like what, what did you say? <laughs> like, because I didn't. It just was. It was weird. It was like. You know, you got a problem. I mean, I wasn't like that, but weirdos, (laughs) weirdos are here, man. (laughs) It was just like, wow. Like, and that, so there's another realization. Wow. Here's just a person being a normal person. Why is it so shocking to me? Well, it's because of where I came from. Well, then that brings us back to culture. I mean, I I think about it. A lot of what you're studying is a, a kind of a holistic culture traditionally whereas here we're very atomistic and i think that that does cause some of the confusion and collisions america is very and western as a whole is very atomistic america is probably the most extreme into that i don't know if you had any thoughts on that what's that word atomistic i don't know if i've heard that how do you spell that um a-t-o-m-i-s-t-i-c a-t-o-m atomistic so like uh, a good example is they've done studies um, i forgot the scientist you know i apologize but they will take americans and look at a fish tank and we will describe the fish going by they will take someone from the far east or even near east and they will describe what's in the background so it's a it's a complete different mentality in in the east they're much more oriented and part of it is because of the rice bog situation they had to worry about the water flow from the neighbors to their place so everything's very cooperative here's all about staking your own claim and and it's it's a very deep relevant distinct difference in the culture right yeah i so my travels to india were a great awakening for me I mean, and and this is why. So my, sometimes my wife and I will somehow catch some news, like some topical news, like maybe 
people whining and crying about something, right? And mm-hmm. and my wife and I, like, for, just from time to time, we'll hear something, and we'll, and my wife and I will be like, you know what? I wish those people could go live in India for three months, six months. Mm-hmm. Go live there for six months, and then come back here, and then we'll see if you're still whining because because Americans are so tunnel vision. That we don't even know it, but we are like, that's the thing. Like you can't sure. explain it to, to an American that's never traveled the world because they don't know. So we always say, man, go travel, go see the world. Like if you think this is the worst country in the world, you need to go travel the world and you need to live <laughs> there. Go live in India for three months. I went to India once for two months and I was traveling and I also, one of the stops was in Dubai. And mm. after two months of traveling, mostly in India, I came back to my apartment in New Jersey and I walked into the bathroom and like I almost started crying because I was so happy to I, I'm not it's not even a joke but just to have a a real bathroom that's oh, yeah. clean and that I can just go to the bathroom like like that itself was I got I got, I literally got tears in my eyes and I'm like I can't <laughs> believe this thank you you know thank you for just this bathroom and and think about the average American. Like, they don't think twice. Well, no. Think of the magic, though. We can control the temperature. <laughs> no, that's a big damn deal. Yeah. If you think of it, we have a switch on the wall where we can adjust by a degree or two. <laughs> that is the level. Um, we The average American in the worst place, I mean, among us poorest, lives better than a king did in the 1600s. Mm, totally. And that's amazing to consider. Yeah. Now, back on track, you discovered podcasting, and it kind of goes with a spirituality because it looks like your first show was The Mystic Show. Um, or one of the first ones. Run. Okay. Yeah. That I So when I found out about podcasting, I was like, it's it sort of clicked immediately because I was like, I was like, wow, this is this is audio, audio only. And I'm like, dude, I know audio. <laughs> so I I knew I could step right in and immediately, at least in, in terms of audio production, I could just do way better than everyone else was doing because, well, today the audio quality in podcasting is somewhat better, but definitely back then sure. you would listen to podcasts and the audio is terrible. I mean, some shows are still terrible, but back then it was even worse. And it's just because people mm-hmm. don't know. And it's nothing against the people. They just don't know. They don't hear it. And they just turn on a mic and they record and there's dogs barking and air conditioners and cups banging on the table and thuds and, 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 you know, lip smacks and sneezes and a zillion things. And, um, 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 and they don't, no one knows. They just go. So I, I knew when I heard all that, I'm like, dude, I can <laughs> have a place in this industry. So that's, so what I did. I was actually sort of in in transition because about three years before that, three three years before that, I had written a book. I wrote a self-help book because I'm a very positive person. I believe people can improve themselves. I believe they can achieve their goals in their life and overcome their stuff because remember back in 2003, that's what I did, right? I had to overcome. I, I drove my life into the ground. I had to overcome it. So I wrote a book and I did some speaking and I had some, uh, you know, some seminars I used to do, right? Hey, come pay, pay 30 bucks on a Saturday for a seminar on goal setting or something good. And 
well, anyway, I did that for probably about three years and it just, it, it depressed me because no one cares about any of that stuff. Or I should say very few people care about any of that stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, this is your life. <laughs> and y- your life is a mess. You're complaining. Don't you want to fix it or do something? And the answer is no. Most people don't want to do anything about it. So I had to face that reality. And I was like, this is crazy. I can't be like a, you know, like a success coach or whatever I was trying to be, like trying to help people succeed in life. I couldn't do it because I was just depressing, man. Just trying to convince people that they're better than they are and that there's little things they can do to help them. And, and, but no one cares. Very few people care. (laughs) Well, some of that too, um, uh, honestly, I, I'm a little cynical on some of the life coaching industry because, and the self-help industry. It isn't all perfect and positive. A lot of it is very huckster-ish. There's a lot of money changing hands. And, you know, you may have been punished a little bit, not just with the apathy of people, but also people, are you for real or are you not? Right. And how do you know? How How can you tell? Yeah, exactly. So I, and I knew, I knew, I agree with what you said about the whole industry as a whole. And yeah, so I was sort of fighting that battle as well. The other thing is, I hadn't, you know, I wasn't a millionaire. So, you know, if you're a millionaire, if you're like a self made millionaire, then yeah, maybe sure. you could teach people how to do that. But I, I hadn't done that yet. So there was sort of like this, there, there was an incongruence within myself. Like, I'm trying to teach people that they can achieve anything in the world, but. Myself, I, I mean, I've achieved some things, but not anything right. super huge. But that's that's just my own head trash. I think I could, you know, that that's my own problem. Well, it's hard. You're on the path, and it takes time to right. carry on the path. And and you, I'm sure you're finding that in podcasting. You help different podcasters. I'm right. Sure so that not everyone's super successful. Right. So here's the thing: after three, four years of of trying to be in self help and to help people. I, I knew I, I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. This isn't, I'm not going to spend my life fighting people trying to help them. So then I literally, for about six months, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was still doing some of my self-help stuff with my book, but mm-hmm. I was like, I want to do something else. And I didn't know what it was. And that's when I came across podcasting. And that's when everything clicked. I was like, audio, I'm an engineer. And so literally within about six months after that, I opened a podcast studio in northern New Jersey in 2012. So, you know, talk about being ahead of the curve. Like nowadays, like, oh, everyone's opening a podcast studio and podcasting is huge. Well, so anyway, I did it back then. I was a little ahead of the curve and I started a bunch of shows. And I so I had that studio for three years and I had some local clients who would come in and do their shows. But anyway, that's how I got into the whole podcasting space was by having my own local studio, which was cool. Now, did that kind of help reaffirm you, uh, reaffirm your love for recording? Because I, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like it, maybe you sort of got burned burned out on it and away from it. And maybe podcasting with its intimate type of arrangement and your spirituality might have really gone well together. You're absolutely right. When I, so during the six months where I didn't, six months when I didn't know what I was going to do, I asked myself some good questions, and one of them was, what are you truly an expert at? Because clearly, 
being a self-help person and an author and a speaker and all that, trying to do seminars, I wasn't an expert at that, right? I knew I wasn't. Like, it, maybe if I did that for 10 years, then I might be an expert. And yeah. I literally made lists. What am I good at? Well, I worked for my dad's roofing company for many years and at different times. And so maybe in the world of roof, roofing, I'm an expert. Okay. Yeah, but who good. wants to be that? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's some of the hardest work you'll ever do in your life. So anyway, I'm just brainstorming a list. And one of the things on there was audio engineer. And so after I looked at this list of what am I really good at, like for real, audio engineer was the, was, was the biggest one because my experience, what I had studied and what I had done and what I had experienced and what I had accomplished is more than most people in the world. So I was like, in, in audio engineering, I can stand there as sort of a world-class engineer. Now, I'm not the top engineer, but I'm in some somewhere more closer to the top than I am to the bottom for sure. So I guess you are. Well, maybe. But <laughs> so anyway, that's what I decided. And I'm like, so then when, when I found out about podcasting and I knew that audio was like the one thing in the world that I am truly an expert in, that's when I realized that this is it because I can do, I can go into the world of podcasting and I can be, I can bring all my expertise there. So clicked. Now in 2011 though, it, there, there was, okay. Um, Adam Carolla, even Joe Rogan in 2011 was popular, but not necessarily hugely profitable. Other than Carolla, Leo Laporte with uh, Twit TV, I think Earwolf may have been starting to come up at the time. Did you have, what gave you the confidence that, okay, there's something here, I can make a living? Well, one of my first, um, one of the, one of the first ways I came across podcasting was actually through Cliff Ravenscraft, mm. which people know back then he used to teach podcasting. And so he podcast had a course. Podcast answer man. What? Podcast answer man. Yeah. He used to be the podcast answer man. And so he had like these five videos on a web page that went over the entire process of like, okay, you do the recording and then you set up your feed and then you get a, a media host and then, you, you know, he went whatever. Sure. And he did, he did it his own way, by the way, which is not done that way anymore. But back then it was a way to do it anyway. And I saw him talking about that and he's not an audio guy at all. Like he'll admit that, right? He's just not an audio guy. Mm -hmm. He's more of a content guy, right? Whatever. And it's great. So that, so I learned a lot of the technical details about podcasting from him and others. I did more research than just him, but that but then just by looking at people who were in the industry, I I felt that my expertise was way above theirs and and definitely overkill, right? You don't have to be an audio engineer with album credits to get into podcasting, obviously. And and I don't use all my audio engineering knowledge in podcast production because as far as music production goes, that's way bigger and more complicated than podcast production so it just gave me how about an really. audio drama let me step on that for a second yeah, how about yeah. audio drama that would seem to be almost to a level when you have foley and everything else put in that would seem to be pretty complex yeah it can be yes absolutely absolutely i mean in a different way than music i mean yeah right but it could be just as complex or even maybe more complex sure i didn't know if that was something you ever played with or had an interest in not too much. I mean, I've 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 produced a couple episodes with some sound effects and all that. Nothing nothing on a major scale, but I mean, you know, it's I can do it. I haven't <laughs> I haven't gotten any clients like that, so that's why I really haven't done much of that. Okay, I, you know, I was just wondering. I was like, that to me is kind of 
next level spoken. For sure. Versus, um, and then music is uh, obviously its own thing with its own challenges, depending. I mean, yeah. um, recording a symphony offers different challenges than recording a, a rock band. For sure. <laughs> now, on that note, though, and you brought up a great point. You don't necessarily need to be a music audio engineer or a film audio engineer. Is there a law of diminishing returns in a podcast recording? As far as like audio quality? Yes. Yeah. So definitely. Um, you know, what I, so you hear some of the people in the podcasting space, they'll tell people, don't worry about the audio. Just start your podcast. Just start your podcast. <laughs> Go ahead. Start a podcast. And I agree with that, but I don't agree with the first part that forget the audio because the audio does matter. Matter, However, the audio matters for the average podcaster. All they have to be is in, in terms of audio quality, it just has to be good enough. Mm-hmm. Meaning it needs to be average without any major blemishes and major mistakes in the audio quality. That's all. So that's fine. So that way... An average podcaster, let's say from zero to 10 on audio quality, they can put out a five or a six audio quality, and that's great. And their listeners can hear it, and it's great. Everybody loves it. Great. Then you have other people like me who I want a 9.8 out of 10. Sure. And so I I mean, I've, I sort of owned some equipment before I started podcasting, like a channel strip and you know certain expensive audio equipment. So yeah, my, for instance, my show, it's definitely it, you know, it's definitely higher audio quality than the average show. Um but people don't need to be need that quality. However, that quality does exude something. Meaning when people hear it, even if it's subconsciously, they know that oh wow, this is this is on a different level. Like oh, sure. this it sounds is. awesome. That you know, you're a pro. Exactly, they hear you're a pro versus a hobbyist, and without and even, I, I mean, it's, without even intellectualizing it, they feel that. So you don't have to tell them, you don't have to explain it or prove it. They just hear it, and that's it. So I mean, if I was to come out and if if I was to come out and say, "Oh, I teach podcast production," and if my show sounded right. like garbage, people would immediately be like, "What? Why is this is stupid? This guy is." <laughs> Sounds sounds terrible. Why? How can he teach audio production? I agree. And w- the way I knew immediately the level you were on is the use of Barry. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because that's challenging. It's it's not only uh, the mixing, but it's the performance. Right. Well, and reacting against a recorded voice. It's not easy to do drops continuously. Yeah, I mean, so what I do with Barry is actually not that difficult. I mean, it's a, I have my iPad and I have like a little sound clips app. And mm-hmm. so I have just like maybe 16 different clips and I just have them in front of me as I'm talking. So I can just ask Barry a question and then quickly tap the the sound clip and it plays immediately. So um, it's not that hard to do, actually, to do it live. Um, I, and I love doing it. 
I know that's something that stood out. What what made you decide to do that? Because I think you did it from episode one. Yeah, so kind of gone back. When I was in, when I had the physical studio in New Jersey, I was doing a show called Social Media Unscrambled with my friend David Deutsch. And so in my studio in New Jersey, by the way, Barry was the maintenance guy. For real? Yeah. It's not, not your connections back in the 90s with no, actually no, no. Barry White in the studio. No, I met Barry. He, he was the maintenance guy. He was this older black gentleman. He was a great guy. He told the best stories. And he would come in and sit down and talk to me like he wanted to take a break. You know, he's an older guy. He's like, you know, and he wasn't doing any major maintenance. I mean, he was just changing light bulbs and doing, you know, <laughs> doing good things, but not breaking his back because he was an old guy. So he'd come into right. my studio and sit down and sort of like want to take a 15 minute break. So if I if I wasn't busy, I'd be like, yeah, come on in. And he'd come in and sit so no one could see that he was in there. And him and I would just talk and then. But his voice was so rich. I mean, you know, you heard the sound clips. Sure. After like after a few times coming in and we, we became friendly, I just started as he was sitting there talking, I would just get out of like I'd get out a mic stand and I'd put it like maybe <laughs> eight feet in front of him and then I would just sit back down. And then like two minutes later I'd get up, I'd just put a mic on the stand and then like sit back down and then I put a cable and then I like slowly I did this because I didn't want him to feel like pressure. <laughs> Don't spook him. <laughs> so I ended up setting everything up. And so when he came in, I would just record. And then I would move the mic a little closer, move it to two feet away. And then I'd go sit down mm. and we keep talking. Five minutes later, I get up, I'll move the mic like one foot away. And that's close, you know, for someone who mm -hmm. for someone who, does, you know, I, I didn't ever ask him. Can I? I, well, I did ask him. I was like, you don't mind. If, can I record just for my own sake? He's like, yeah, go ahead. He didn't care at all. <laughs> and so we recorded Barry and I probably have about more than an hour of raw Barry recorded. And I thought that's something that I could like not auction off, but like if it, like, let's say if I raise a bunch of money, then I'll release that raw hour of Barry. But anyway, uh, so then I start, then he said some things. and I, So I clipped out some of the, his, some of the things he said and started using him in this show called social media unscrambled and everybody mm. loved it. Like the, the, yeah, oh yeah, was the first one. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and people were like, oh, I love that. Who is that? And so I, then I told Barry, like a few months later, as it's picking up and people love it, I'm like, Barry, <laughs> people were using the little sound clip of you saying, yeah, oh yeah. And he's like, oh really? Oh, uh, that's funny. I said, do you, <laughs> people love it, Barry? He's like, oh, great. Like he didn't, <laughs> he just didn't care. He's like, I told him, I said, Barry, if our show blows up and we start making money, I'm going to give you money for this. And he's like, okay, great. Just a nice Let guy. me know. <laughs> uh, Do you still talk to him at all? Is he still No. Around? I went back to Jersey. I went, I drove by the building, and but he was, I went in the building. He wasn't there. There's, well, there's four buildings there. I went, I went into, I went into all the buildings to look for him. I didn't see him. Mm, shame. I know. He has such a rich, honeyed voice. Oh, man. That, it's like up there with Morgan Freeman, just uh, uh, only. Yeah, not many people have that. You have to live a full life and be of that age almost with with a spirit to have that voice. Yes. I mean, it's definitely incredible. So now we have coming up soon podcast movement. This will be out after. So you'll have done podcast movement. Great. You've done a few podcast movements now, right? Yeah, I've actually been to all of them. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, this will be the what the sixth one, I think. Now, do you uh, do you always do a microphone shootout or something? No, I don't always did that. I think a couple years ago I did the microphone shootout at a couple different events. Um, I stopped doing that though because I don't know. Like I, I like some people thought we were selling microphones. Um, mm. other people didn't understand why. Why would I want to talk into ten different mics? I don't understand. Like they didn't understand that each mic is different, and right. in order to see like the 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 matchup between your voice and the correct microphone will sound really awesome and then the other microphones they won't sound as good so one way to find out which mic is the best mic for your voice and it, it differs for every person right. if you talk into 10 mics and we record it and then i can send you that audio through the email then you can listen and you can be like oh man this one microphone that sounds the best that's the one i'm gonna buy so people didn't really I mean some a lot of people did understand that but it's a lot of work to do the the microphone test drive you know bringing oh, all sure. the mics having enough staff to run it processing all the audio emailing it it's a lot of work tracking it I guess you ran it through a laptop with 10 different tracks so you know each microphone track something like that We or- actually ran it through a mixer so I had 10 8 or 10 channels of a mixer and we would just unmute one by one, go down from channel one all the way to 10 and okay. just unmute, unmute number one, they would talk and then you would mute number one and unmute number two. And so only one mic was coming through the mixer at one time. That's how we could record them separately. Mm, makes sense. And you're of the mindset then that pretty much at a certain level, all the mics are good. It's just a matter of which mic matches you. Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing though, like like an SM7B or an RE20 which costs around 350 bucks and 450 bucks respectively. Mm-hmm. Those are going to sound better than a $50 microphone. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I meant I mean apples to apples. Correct. So, yeah, yeah, correct. <laughs> and and by the way, you, like I have a you don't need to spend $450 on a mic. You can spend 50 or 60 bucks. Um like I have a client and she has a very popular show. She's, she uses an ATR2100 still. They're not bad. But I taught her how to use it properly. So Technique. she doesn't, you know, she doesn't do this kind of stuff. And yeah, talking. And just going. Can you hear me? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. I'm sorry. So that's, yeah, she doesn't <laughs> do this kind of weird stuff and talk like this. You know, she actually knows mic technique. And so if you have good mic technique, you just need a good microphone. You don't need a great one. And you will sound really good for sure. And if you have an audio engineer who has a love of plugins. Oh God, I have a problem. <laughs> I really, I have an ad- addiction. I was so good for like a year. I didn't buy anything for like a year, literally. Um, well, cause I decided one year, I'm like, you know what? This will be the year I'm not going to buy really anything. And I didn't. Hmm. But anyway, then a little while after that, I was, I saw this other plugin and, and I, I don't just buy like, $30 plugins like some of them are like a couple hundred bucks and I mean I love it I love I love I love them and I love messing around with it but it, it does cost a little bit of money <laughs> well it's still cheaper than the old days and the analog when you had to have actually physical totally. pieces of equipment oh and, and now they can do a lot more even like that's the cool thing there, there are plugins now that th- there was never an analog you know counterpart 
Yeah. They they do things now in a computer that were never done before. So I kind of wonder sometimes, though, if that's um, a good thing or a bad thing or maybe both, because there's a certain charm with mistakes. I kind of like like when I hear music and guitar and I hear the fingernails scraping on the fretboard. It really it does something for me. That could be seen as a, you know, a flub. But, you know, that's why I like live songs, things like that, is because you feel you feel like they're on the very edge about to fall off or make a huge mistake or blunder. And that to me is like when things are so impactful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And so, yeah, some music. And some recording you want just to be raw. You want it to come off as raw. So then you don't really do much to it. Other times you want it to be more, you, you want to craft the audio into its own experience, like beyond a performance or something. So, you know, you think of really good sounding albums. Like for instance, I just listened to um, one of my favorite songs by the Chili Peppers is uh, Parallel Universe. Mm-hmm. And it, you just find it on YouTube and you can, you know, get get a good like the official good sounding copy. And like that's a highly engineered record, but it sounds oh, awesome. Sure. Like it's done very it, like it's just it. They did it so well that it be, it transcended the normal jam session vibe and became something else like above that. Like so. So there are levels of production. That's my point. Sure. Well, that makes me think of like Tool. Oh, man. New album, August 30th, dude. <laughs> oh. So, I mean, but that's a high, high production level in my mind or even Radiohead. Yeah. And th- there's, yeah, you can, you can get as nutty as you want, but, but also for fixing things. So like a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these new DSers, you know, or, um, you know, these, these plugins that, um, they were like, there's one called Gulfos. I just bought this one called Gulfos. Like goal as in seagull, um, or goal as in soccer goal. Uh, G U L L. Okay, like seagull. Yeah, it's a plug-in, and it's it. I think it costs around a couple hundred bucks, whatever. But basically, it's um, it's an intelligent equalizer, so it'll actually oh, wow. listen to the audio and it'll raise. And lowers different frequencies, like and it's it's it, it actually uh, factors in the perception of hearing as well. So oh wow yeah so like if there's like resonance, if there's resonance like in the low end and it's like muddying up the sound, like if you just took a regular EQ and turned it down, that's fine. But then you're turning down a lot of information as well. Gulfos, for instance, will remove the actual frequencies that are resonant and muddy but it'll keep the others and so it's it's like a think of it like an equalizer but sort of like artificial intelligence as well so again that's a good example of a of something that was not available before but it is really helpful because you can just remove different resonances easily right so very handy and do you do that while you're recording or do you do it um to the track after it's recorded yeah after yeah after most everything most all processing you want to do after and in podcasting, that's even more true, uh, which is why when certain people use, you know, gates and compressors to tape, as we say, before it's recorded, 
I don't I don't suggest that at all. I I mean unless it's live, unless you're broadcasting live, that's different. But if you're just recording audio, I always suggest just record it straight, just flat. Capture it really well and then afterwards you can do whatever you want. But if you have your gate set wrong or you're, you're compressing it too much, you know, or the release time is not right, and, I mean, you can mess up the audio and there's no reason to do that. You could do it later. Take five minutes, adjust the gate afterwards. Do you see that a lot with the radio people? Um, I don't know. I don't actually interact with that many radio people. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I know like uh, David Hooper, who's been on the show before. Yeah. I believe he definitely uses a gate and compression to tape. And he has radio engineer and everything set up and he runs a radio show. So I was thinking that some of that might be kind of habit of different industry. Sure. Yeah, sure. Now it's, it's not like the ultimate sin to use a gate to tape. If you do it right, mm -hmm. it's fine. The problem in podcasting is that the average podcaster doesn't know how to do the settings properly. They don't know. They don't even know what they're hearing. So what, what I, my, the only reason I'm suggesting that is so people like so people don't screw it up. That's all. Well, that's good. And of course, when you teach at um, podcast engineering skill, you're kind of going way beyond just using a gate and a compressor. Oh yeah, yeah. We go all the way deep, all the way. We yeah. Have you looked at doing online courses for just smaller components and selling it off? I have. Um, I I'm in this weird situation where i mean i have my course and it's awesome everyone loves it more than mm -hmm. 60 people have gone through the course and loved every second of it but i but i know there's smaller courses i could make i know first of all i'm terrible at marketing like i actually haven't really done any marketing so it's like i'm just ter like i so there's a lot i can do but a lot of it i don't i'm not sure what to do and of course it takes time so i'm i'm trying to figure these things out you know my expertise is is what it is and Right. And I love it. But like, if you're going to ask me, like, you know, how to, how to market this or, or now if I got to do shorter courses, like what, what, what shorter course should I do? I don't know. I mean, I know I could just pick something. Okay. Microphone technique, whatever. But maybe that's something that people don't want or maybe three people want it. And you know what I mean? Like, I'm in a, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm in a weird position. Like I need help, but that's as a suggestion. Maybe you can have one of your, um, sessions or schools or whatever recorded and just knock a hundred bucks off or a discount. Everybody and say, just understand that I'm going to be recording this. And then later on, you can turn to somebody who's an expert who can cut it up and use material you're already doing, hire a camera person, whatever, and just do it right. You're already doing it. Repeat that, record it, cut it up, and then you can package it and sell it with an expert. I could do that. I mean, I do record every every classes every semester I do. I record all the classes and because, you know, students need to be able to refer back to the class, right? We rewatch it again. Exactly. Um I could do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I but I don't know. Is that the right thing to do? I don't know. I, that's uh, that's what most um a lot of marketers do. And it's not that different than a stand-up comic who is going to do the routine. They tape it over two nights, three nights, whatever it is. You may even cobble it together over a, a, like four sessions to say, okay, I'm going to take a year. And, you know, you look at it, record the first one. Then you say, okay, how can I tighten this up? How can I think of this as a session or a lesson? And then do it out that way. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> 
But I totally. But what stinks that. is like, like I have a feeling like other people are. I mean, there's a lot of courses already, but none, none like podcast engineering school. But like, that's not going right. to last forever, right? Some other people are going to try to come out with their own course, and and I mean, so I don't know. I hope I hope I don't get left behind because because I'm not good at marketing. But whatever. Well, you can. Uh, um, I, I'm sure you're friends with some marketers. I'm friends with marketers, but I don't. I don't get marketing, man. Like I don't, I talk to a lot of marketers. In fact, recently I talked to three different people about marketing my mm -hmm. school and I challenged them on some of their ideas and some points. And because before I hire someone, I need to trust them that they know what the hell they're doing. Like I've been online for what, what you know, actively online for probably 10 years now, let's say. Right. So mm -hmm. I've seen a lot and I've done some ads. I've done a little bit of things, but I'm not an expert. So like, Anyway, I talked to three different marketing people and none of them ever called me back or gave me an estimate or gave me a price. Wow. All three disappeared. They didn't they didn't even they didn't even give me a price. So what am I supposed well, to I do? <laughs> and you talk to other marketers and they're like, "Oh, well we're going to do this and that." Like like people have their own cookie cutter methods. Right. And I don't believe what I'm doing fits into your cookie cutter unless you convince me. Right. If you convince me, then I'll do it. And the other thing that these people want, I mean, a lot of money, $5,000 oh, a month. Yeah, it is a lot of money. And actually, I think you're marketing better than you realize. Because the most important marketing is you have word of mouth and you are filling up your classes. Right. But I don't. So other people would say, oh, you should, you know, reach out to your previous students and ask them to market for you. And it's like, uh, re really? I mean, I kind of don't want to do that. It's like. Sure. I mean, I don't want to taint the relationship. It's like. I mean, hey, promote, you know, share my school if you want, but I, I don't know. I don't like that kind of thing. Like when people just do shameless marketing, like I can't stand that it because it's so it's not authentic at all. It's just someone groveling for more money. And that's pitiful. And I never want to come off as someone who's that pitiful that I'm just going to try to hawk my crap everywhere I go to every person. <laughs> I mean, sorry, I'm not doing it. So and and I think that's great. I mean, oh. <laughs> the first thing is you have to have is integrity and a reputation. And that's going to hold that over the long period. Right. I mean, the fact is that you have people who are graduates of your school, like Dave Jackson, who are heavyweights in the community. That is the statement to what you do. Right. So you, you already actually have the reputation. I think it's just a matter of packaging. Right. But to wrap things up. People can find you at podcastengineeringschool.com. Yep, everything's there. Oh, fantastic. And of course, Podcast Engineering Show, which is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I binged the hell out of that and listening to Barry. <laughs> I'm also live streaming now on Wednesday nights. How's that going? It's going okay. Uh, it's sort of an experiment. I'm just sort of having fun, but it's called the Podcaster's Lounge. So if anybody wants to lounge and try <laughs> and say informal. it like Arnold Schwarzenegger, lounge. <laughs> Well, we'll definitely have to check that out. <laughs> it's fun. Well, hey, thanks so much for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. 
I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money's a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, tysonfranklin.com.